0: First Peter chapter 2, verse 3, If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And we're thinking this morning of the ongoing faith of the believer. We have read, if I look from the beginning of chapter 2, Wherefore laying aside all malice, and all guile, and hypocrisies, and envies, and all evil speakings, Lay aside everything that would injure true fellowship and love of one another. That's going to be the theme. Verse 2, as newborn babes desire or crave. That's the, the Greek is strong. Crave, long for, the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. <clears throat> Not that we are like newborn babes. But like newborn babes, we hunger for the word. And then verse 3, In the context of fellowship and the word of God, If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming. How should we approach the living God? As believers, we are saved. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And you could read there in verse 2, Since ye have tasted. The if is meant in that sense. Not as a question, but as a piece of reasoning. Since ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming. How should we approach him? The Lord of heaven and earth <clears throat> in our personal prayers as a congregation when we worship how do we approach God what are we thinking about as we approach him <clears throat> what's in our mind and what follows is counsel on this very point to whom coming <clears throat> excuse me As unto a living stone, (coughs) disallowed indeed of men. (coughs) This, I'm sure, will pass if you read verse 4 To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. What's in our minds as we come to Him? Perhaps we come in prayer with thankfulness for salvation. Thankfulness for all that God has done for us. Well, that has its place, but that's not how we approach him. That's beginning with ourselves. The counsel here is to whom coming as unto a living stone. What is in our minds when we begin to pray, corporately or individually? What is in our minds is the Lord, and Christ in particular. This is objective. We're looking to Him and at Him. We're extolling Him. We're worshipping Him. Now, all that I'm about to say is, <coughs> May not apply to an emergency prayer that you pray in the course of your working day. A prayer you offer to God for the moment. You've had a special opportunity, and so you pray to Him for help. You've had a great difficulty or a temptation has arisen. There's some emergency. Well, you might go straight to the point with the Lord with your eyes open in your living situation and you pray and call upon him that's right that's legitimate that's proper but now you've come to worship now you've set aside all that this isn't an immediate emergency you've come to seek out the Lord you're in your home in private devotions personal devotions how do you begin what is your thinking? Not not yourself. Not yet. Not even your sin. And your repentance. Not yet. Him. Have the Lord of glory in mind. And Christ in particular. To whom coming. That uh, Those words, to whom coming, you're making an approach. You're drawing near. You've been thinking of other things, doing other things. Now you put them aside, all clamour, you shut the door on it all, and you draw near to God. It's time to be thinking of him. It's time to be thinking of him in the terms the Apostle Peter describes here, as unto a living stone. What a contradiction in those words. A living stone? A stone is an inert thing, a dead thing, a motionless thing. But this is a living stone. It pulsates with life. Take stone, first of all. You're thinking of a great foundation stone. That's what Peter is going to be talking about and that foundation stone you think of the foundation stones of the temple he's going to picture that too so it's clearly what is in mind some of the foundation stones in the beneath the surface walling of the temple of Solomon were up to 20-25 feet long huge slabs of marble they were carefully chiselled and worked off-site before they were dragged on rollers to the position where they would be laid. They were perfect in shape and symmetry. They were valuable, precious. They were laid and set perfectly. But there they are, solid, ready to bear the weight of the building, enduring, And he is everlasting, so strong, unbreakable, unchanging. Be there for centuries, he is there forever. So the stone, when it's applied to Christ, the foundation stone, it reminds you that he is a foundation. His suffering and death on Calvary, his life of perfect obedience, secured heaven for all his people. He bore away the punishment of sin for them to be cleansed and in the presence of God. What a foundation. The person and work of Christ is the foundation of the salvation forever and forever of every one of his blood-bought people. A stone, a great foundation, but in this case, a living stone. Living. He feeds his people. He provides for them. He pours out upon them warmth and love and kindness, forgiveness Constantly. He helps them from on high. To whom coming, approach him. Have these things in mind the power and the glory and the goodness of Christ. I'm thinking of the one to whom I come. I shall come to myself later. Think of him, the everlasting Son of God who suffered and died for his people. Don't think of how he suffered and died for me just yet. Leave me out of it. Think of his power and his goodness and his promises and his power to bless and help and sustain and give everlasting life. To whom coming? Think of his condescension, whatever brought him from the eternal glories of heaven into this world. For people like us, he could have started all over again with a new race, but he chose to set his love and his pity and compassion upon fallen men and women and to display his love and show how far he would go in love to redeem. To whom coming I want to come to him. I want to leave myself out of it just for a moment and worship him and adore him and love him. To whom? Coming. He's a person. He is God. But he is a personal God as unto a living stone. Says it all, doesn't it? In so few words. But Peter goes on to say in verse 4, disallowed, which means from the original rejected, even more strongly repudiated indeed of men. The indeed almost can mean inevitably there. Rejected, repudiated of men the chief priests and the scribes and the rabbis, but not only them, we also in our time disallowed him, rejected him. The term repudiated him. We disallowed, we disqualified him. We said, he is no saviour. And so we, we rejected him. It's all in the word. Why did they disallow him and repudiate him? Well, you know why? Because he did not present himself as an earthly saviour. He did not present himself as one who was going to deliver the nation of Israel on earth and make her great on earth and make her world rulers and rich and prosperous on earth. He came for souls. He came to bring forgiveness and spiritual life but they disqualified him on that account they wanted an earthly saviour they were earthly men materialistic people and they repudiated and disqualified him he wasn't the saviour they wanted they rejected him of course because he rejected them he stood for holiness of life and purity before God. They knew that if he were to triumph, they had come to an end of their tenure. They were finished. They were out. They were hypocrites. They were false teachers. They sensed it. They knew it. It was the writing on the wall for them. So they repudiated him and disallowed him, disqualified him, rejected him, but chosen of God. You could put that slightly differently. Elect of God. As a noun, the elect. That's the sense, but made the elect of God. Not so much chosen as a choice between two options, but he was the supreme one elect of God and precious. Unsurprisingly, think of Christ as saviour when he came. Incarnate. We've been thinking recently about the incarnation. What an astonishing act that God would so humble himself and come in to our polluted and sinful world to pay such a price for us what a mighty act of condescension for God to come all the way down for us his life of perfection against tremendous temptation all the forces of hell were constantly hurled against him And he stood perfect, showing that he was the perfect lamb, qualified to be our saviour. He could not possibly have had sin of his own, because if he had had sin of his own, he would require a saviour. He would not be qualified to be a saviour. He lived a life of perfection to demonstrate that he was the perfect sacrificial lamb, able to make an atonement for all his people. And he lived a perfect and holy life in order to earn salvation on behalf of his people. The life of Christ was so unblemished and holy and perfect. Not only was there no sin viewed negatively, there was no sin, no fault, no blame but there was such an abundance a superabundance of good works and loving kindness and tender mercy and helpfulness and virtue streamed out of him he exercised the virtue and the righteousness of millions that was the value of it His perfect life was so wonderful, especially viewed in the context of thousands and thousands of offensive temptations every second that passed that it earned salvation for all who were under his wing, under his care, just as his suffering and death wiped away the judgment of sin on every moment of sin that has ever passed in the life of the Christian, so his righteousness earned and deserved the glory everlasting for his people.
1: Christ,
0: chosen, elect of God and precious, no wonder he's described in our hymn as heaven's beloved one, the perfect Son of God. We think of these things in some shape or form whenever we come to pray formally and properly before God. We revere him. We admire him afresh. We wonder at him. We love him. Chosen of God and precious full of value and worth and treasure of every possible kind. That's our Saviour and our Lord, to whom coming, as unto an enduring solid stone, unshakable, never to change, but alive and full of life and blessing, Inevitably repudiated by sinful mankind, but selects in the sight of God and precious. Ye also, verse 5, as living stones. How can we be living stones? He is the preeminent and the true living stone. But when we're saved... There's a stone-like quality about us also. This is not the same as the name that Christ gave to the Apostle Peter, the rock. This is a stone, a mighty foundation stone. That's Christ. But in a measure we resemble him. The perseverance of the saints. If we're truly saved, we shall never be lost. We considered that last study two weeks ago. So we resemble in some shape and form a stone. We may be stones too because we're firmly fixed on the stone. And prayerful and drawing help from him, we're unshakable. Soon as we fail to do that, well, we may cease to resemble a stone. But not cold stones. We also, living stones... Filled with spiritual life. Given at conversion. Ye also as living stones. Are built up. The architecture word used in the Greek. For house building. Are built up. But a temple is in mind. As the passage will go on to show. Stone by stone. Upon that foundation stone Christ. Ye are built up. A spiritual house. We remember these things as we come to pray. Who am I? Who is the Lord? We revere him. Who am I? I come as a stone in the Lord's spiritual house. I don't come in prayer before him as an individual only. Living the Christian life, independently of other believers whether it's corporate worship or individual worship I see myself as a little stone placed by Christ in a temple the temple is his body the church I belong to a particular church a particular congregation this isn't the church of Asia the Church of England, this is a particular congregation. I'm set like a small stone on the foundation of Christ in that congregation. Is that true of me? Do I see myself as one of the stones placed in the position that Christ would have me in the church laboring with others Part of a team, if you like. Serving the Lord together with others. Humbling myself as one of them. Appreciating them. The passage started like this. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Is that me, my stone? Closely fitting in with other stones? taking my place, sharing my duties, sharing my worship. That's how I'm to see myself as I go before God, not as an individual only. I am an individual, of course, loved by Christ, but he set me among others. To whom coming as unto a living stone, ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house together we are a house of worship and a house of witness we are worshippers and witnesses as individuals but here we are seen as members of a spiritual house not only that but as I come to pray I'm a member of the holy priesthood. The New Testament is very clear. The Old Testament priesthood has ended. That was temporary. That was for the time being, before Christ came. That was part of the great picture language of the temple worship in the Old Testament. It was going to be fulfilled and eclipsed and in the New Testament, we would be a kingdom of priests. It would be a priesthood of all believers. And holy priesthood. I'm a member of this priesthood. What is a priest? Well, I'm sure you all remember the definition of a priest. A priest, strictly, is one who represents God. To man and one who represents man to God both ways do I represent God to man by my life do I as a father, a mother represent Christ to my children do I represent Christ in my place of business am I representing God to man and then do I pray and have a ministry of intercession? Do I represent man to God and on lost man's behind behalf or my lost children's behalf plead to God for them? Then I'm a priest and I must never forget it. I'm a representative of God to man and I plead on behalf of man to God. Both ways, I stand between. And holy priesthood, the priests of old, in order to illustrate this, had to be clad from top to bottom in the appointed priestly garments denoting purity and holiness. They didn't necessarily have it personally, but they must have it in symbols, in their garments because they represented God. And we must be a an holy priesthood, striving for Christ to live godly lives. And then our two-way representation to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Why spiritual sacrifices? Because physical sacrifices are no longer offered. The blood of bulls and goats, those were all illustrative symbols of the Old Testament. They are past with the coming of Christ. Christ now is the only sacrifice. And the churches on his behalf offer up spiritual, that is, non-physical sacrifices. What are the sacrifices? Worship and holiness and service. That's the threefold sacrifice of a spiritual nature. Worship and holiness and service. Am I offering up that sacrifice? Are we together as a church offering up that sacrifice Offering up spiritual sacrifices. You think of the word sacrifice. This is all in our minds to some extent as we come to worship and as we come to pray. A sacrifice is something you lose. It's offered. It goes up in smoke. Of course they were symbolic in Old Testament times the aroma the sweet smelling savour offerings the sin offerings and so on and so with us we offer up sacrifices everything we do is given to God obviously this is seen most readily with stewardship isn't it our means it's like a sacrifice, we lose them we lay them on the altar. They're no longer ours to spend. They're no longer under our control. We've parted with them. What has that accomplished? doesn't buy anything. We cannot possibly buy anything by these sacrifices. One sacrifice buys everything. And that is the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. None of our good works and offerings purchase for us anything. That's a lie of the prosperity preachers. You give to God, he gives to you and enriches you. That's terrible heresy. Everything that we secure is purchased for us by Christ alone. But the sacrifice is a good word because we lose it. And happily and cheerfully. We part with that. It's for God's glory. It's for making known his name and his work. It's for him. We part with it. We owe him everything. If you witness, of course, you long for a person's soul. You want that person to find the Lord and to know his grace and his power and most of all especially if it's a costly witness you're doing it for him for his glory because he desires you to do it he calls you to do it he will bless you as you do it in effectiveness you do it for him and for his kingdom and his glory and to make his name known And you do it also for the person to whom you witness. But chiefly, you do it for the Lord. Then you do it with all your heart. What enabled the Apostle Paul to go to city after city where he knew he would suffer violence, opposition of every kind, persecution, he would be abased and scorned and jeered at. He was doing this For Christ, he was doing it for his honour and glory. That's what motivated him. That's what enabled him and strengthened him. And so it is here in this verse. To offer up spiritual sacrifices. We're happy to lose things for Christ. To lose our job if necessary. For his name's sake, even our life. May he enable us to be courageous in the moment of trial. When we look forward to those things, we may think to ourselves, I couldn't, I would recoil, I feel sh- sure I would do anything to avoid this. Yes, but may he give strength to us all if the moment comes and grace to represent him out of love for him and for his sake. What is it? It's just life. They take my life and I'm all the sooner in glory. Spiritual sacrifices. That's what we're set for. Surrendering things of a spiritual nature for spiritual work. Acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Only through Christ is anything acceptable. I move to verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious. This is Isaiah. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded or ashamed. And the uh, Apostle Peter puts the text for his reasoning at the end rather than at the beginning. But here it is. This is the text. And here's an exercise in biblical interpretation which we won't pursue this morning. But if you go through privately verse 6, you see that every single clause is represented In Peter's address, Peter's words which immediately precede it. Every single part is expounded by the apostle. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him, we just come to these great words, shall not be confounded to think and I feel this when I come in prayer. Let's hope so. We will never be disappointed, never be ashamed, never be let down, never be frustrated. Shall not be confounded. Not in life, not in death. Well, dear friends, the translation confounded is very good because the word includes all sorts of ideas which are obviously intended shall not be confounded you pray for something and you pray earnestly and you see a need will you be let down will you be put to shame will anybody be able to point the finger and say, you trusted in that God of yours and he's let you down? It hasn't happened and it doesn't work out. Never. You will never have any cause to be distressed, perplexed, confused, disappointed. Not in life and certainly not in death when the light of this world goes out, when you breathe your last, and you will be ushered in to wonderful things, into the presence of God and the presence of Christ. And you will find yourself, let us suppose, in the reception hall of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And there will be all manner of people deputed to greet you. And that will be such a time of acclamation and wonder and praise and glory. You will never be disappointed. But not in life either. There is a teaching does the rounds that's along these lines. If you pray God has three answers for you. Well, one of three. Yes. Yes no, and wait. And you hear that commonly taught. Well, it's not actually wrong. There's an element of truth in that. The trouble is with this yes, no, and wait formula, it's just incredibly inadequate. God's dealings with us are much more profound than that. Yes, no, and wait. The word I am inclined to agree with most is wait. There's often a wait. And we pray in patience and God-given faith. But just yes, no, that's not good enough. Because the reality is, and the truth is, that God so very often, if not most often, answers our prayers in a different form from that in which we pray them. We pray for something, God grants something infinitely better, but different, if we only knew it. Because all God's answers will be part of the great scheme that he has for us in training us in holiness and godliness and love for him. The great scheme to accomplish our eternal security and bliss. Everything is to that end. I pray for this thing which is so important to me. But God knows that to answer it in such and such a form is infinitely better for me and infinitely kinder and more wonderful and more blessed in the end. He answers so often in a different form from that which we expect or hope for, for his glory and for his goodness. Yes, no, weight is feeble. It's not enough. It's a gross oversimplification. It isn't entirely wrong. It's just first form, kindergarten level of thinking. The answers of God are infallible and profound and wonderful, and no one, who puts his or her trust in Christ, is ever perplexed, disappointed, confounded, ashamed, let down. Never. Dear friends, that should be enough for us. I hadn't gone as far as I had wanted to this morning, but that should be enough for us.